0: Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, nine if necessary. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to study Your Word, that it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and it is in Thy light that we see light. Father, we pray that as we study the Word this evening, that God the Holy Spirit would challenge us with its meaning, that we would recognize that every part of Scripture is designed for our edification and our advance, our spiritual growth, to teach us how to look at every aspect of life from Your perspective and to broaden our horizons from simply thinking about our day-to-day lives to our future destiny in heaven, our inheritance, and what you are preparing us for as we move towards the future, as we move towards your uh, ultimate plan of resolution in human history. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Genesis 25. Genesis 25, and we are... Well, we're going to get into a mess of soup tonight. We've looked at the first part of the Toledote of Isaac, the genealogy of Isaac, dealing with the uh, prophetic announcement that God gave regarding the birth of the twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau the older, Jacob the younger. And the prophecy is that they represented two nations, Two nations, and the struggle within the womb of uh, Rebekah was such that this foreshadowed their future struggle between the two nations, and God laid down the principle in his prophecy that the older would tr- serve the younger now, in the ancient world in Israel as well as in surrounding ancient Near Eastern cultures, there was a law of primogenitor primogenitor meant that the oldest son was the one who received a double portion of inheritance blessing. He was the one who had the privilege, the honor. He was the one who would uh, be the primary one to carry the family name forward. And yet, as we see throughout the history of the patriarchs, God is using a reverse principle. The younger will be the one through whom or to whom the blessing goes. So it went to Isaac and not Ishmael who was older. It's going to go to Jacob and not Esau who is older. So God is not following the traditions of man, but is setting forth His own His own standard. Now, last time, or the last few times, we dealt with how the New Testament utilized uh, Esau and Jacob in terms of a, the uh, representatives of God's choice for the historical plan of Israel. Now we're going to get back into the uh, narrative itself. We're after the Lord announced the prophecy about the older serving the, the younger, we're told in verse 24, When her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. The first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. He's red and hairy. We'll look at what that means in just a minute. And he, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Yaakov, or Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Now we come to our passage in verse 27. We have gone through this already up to this point. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. Now verse 27 and 28 is simply an introduction to the conflict that occurs in verses 29 to 34 it is the transition between their birth and the first major episode that God is going to uh, tell us about that the, God the Holy Spirit is going to record for posterity i often am intrigued by the idea that 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 uh, the scripture just records these little uh, snapshots in the lives of the patriarchs. We, don't, we, we see that these men live uh, 120 years, 150 years. case of Abraham, he lived 175 years. And yet, if we were to read out loud all of the events in the life of Abraham from Genesis 12 to Genesis 25, it would probably take about an hour and a half or two hours to read through all those chapters, maybe a little longer. And yet this covers a period of his life from about the time he was in his late sixties till he died at 175. So we're not really told that much about what happened in all those years. Same thing with Isaac. We're, we're told even less about Isaac. In fact, most of the Toledot of Isaac focuses on, on Jacob rather than Isaac. Very little is uh, revealed to us about isaac himself so after the birth of the twins the boys grow up and by the time we get to verse the the thrust of verse 7 they are uh, grown men they are adult males and they have developed certain traits and they are clearly distinct from one another esau is a skillful hunter now his name esau is an interesting study he is, uh, it says that he was red when he came forth, when he was born, he was, uh, he came out red and he was like a hairy garment all over. Now in the Hebrew, there's a, there's a play on words here. This is a, uh, a pun, the, the Hebrews loved these word plays. The word red or ruddy is the word adom or adem, as you see up there on the screen the word for edom which is the uh, uh, <clears throat> de- which describes the descendants of esau who were n- neighbors to israel who lived to their southeast is the is a slightly different word the consonants are the same other than that one vowel point that's in there but the consonants are the same and there is a play on words here that Esau is red or ruddy and this is an explanation or begins to give the explanation of the origin of the term for the Edomites he is also said to be hairy and the word for hairy is this word over here sa'ir and the consonants in that word which would be the S, the Sheen and the Ion and the Resh, the S, and then that little thing that looks like an apostrophe—that's actually a consonant in Hebrew—and the R are the same consonants that you find in the name of Mount Seir, and Mount Seir becomes a name, Seir becomes a synonym for the Edomites, and it is located in the territory. Of Edom so there's a foreshadowing that goes on here with regard to his name and the description of him at birth that that uh, plays on the meaning of these uh, similar words and this is uh, also has a tendency has an indication of certain negative traits there's some debate as to whether the redness or the ruddiness uh, attaches to the hair or his complexion was he a red-headed baby with red hair all over him, or did he have a ruddy complexion? What's interesting, we, we, you can't really decide from the text, but the, in the ancient world, there was a prejudice against a red-headed person. So if you're red-headed, you'd, you'd be thought to be somewhat cursed of God in the ancient world. And this, in fact, extended up through the Middle Ages, and so that in the in the Middle Ages they frequently depicted Judas Iscariot as a redhead. See, sometimes we have in, in you know in movies you watch a movie you get some uh, guy with black hair and a widow's peak and a pointed little black beard you immediately know this guy's the villain. Well, in the ancient world and up through the Middle Ages they did that with a redhead. So uh, there, there's a a hint here, in terms of his being a redhead, that he's the villain, on the other hand, a someone who is ruddy in their complexion, like David, was thought to be a hero so there's these little little hints in the text. you have to be aware of uh, the nuances of the ancient world in order to pick up some of these underlying themes and the foreshadowing that's that's going on in the text so Esau is presented as a skillful hunter. Literally in the, in the Hebrew, it says that he is a knowing hunter. That means he's learned all the skills related to hunting. He knows the animals. He knows their, their traits. He knows where they go. He knows how to track them. He knows how to trap them. And he knows his weapons so that he is a knowing Hunter, And that knowledge has led to skill, so it is often translated here with the idea of skill, but it is the idea of knowledge and experience uh, that has made him a productive hunter. He's further described as a man of the field. Now, this is a use of the field that has uh, more like uh, the title of the uh, sportsman's magazine, Field and Stream, than it is the uh, agricultural field. He is a man who hunts, he's an outdoorsman, he is rugged, he is a man's man, and he focuses on the outdoors. He's, he's like Jeremiah Johnson. He's just uh, tough, and he is rugged, and he lives outdoors, and he smells like he lives outdoors, and he uh, loves to hunt. And now that's going to play in when we get to Genesis 27, so don't be chuckling too much because... They're going to have to disguise the smell of Jacob when they pull the big farce on uh, on Isaac and, and uh, defraud Esau out of his blessing. But he's a skillful hunter. He's a man of the field. But Jacob, in contrast, is a mild man dwelling in tents. Now, that translation of mild is somewhat questionable. In fact, I can't be sure, no one can be sure, really, uh, what the emphasis on this particular word is. The word in the Hebrew is the word tam, T-A-M. And the word tam is predominantly translated with the idea of moral perfection. But that doesn't make sense in this passage. There's no contrast of morality here. You wouldn't say, well, in contrast to Esau being a skillful hunter, Jacob was a perfect man. See, that just doesn't fit the context. That's not what we're talking about here. And so the meaning of uh, Tom also has the sense of complete. What does that mean? He's a complete man. So uh, many Hebrew scholars think that what this indicates is that he was complete in himself. He was a retiring sort of individual. He was quiet. Uh, I think that it may be indicating, if if, if that's where, where it's going, that he kept to himself. He kept his own counsel, especially in relationship to what we're going to see here in the underlying current is that he's the conniver, he's the heel grabber, the supplanter. He is biding his time and keeping his own counsel about his plans to uh, usurp the birthright and the inheritance right from his brother. Now, I'm sure that these boys both knew God's prophecy for their life, that the older would serve the younger. But what we see throughout the initial part of this, this uh, these next few chapters is that rather than Isaac and Rebecca teaching the boys that they need to just relax and trust God for his provision and that he will bring about the results of that prophecy, they seem to get the boys involved in uh, competition with one another. And so uh, Jacob is pictured here as the one who's waiting back uh, biding his time making his plans and laying a trap and that's exactly and he's the one who's manipulating he's the conniver and we see this element of his character all the way through the next few chapters it's not until he's a bit older and he wrestles with God at a place called Peniel or Penuel you have both both spellings in the uh in the Hebrew, which means this is a place where he met God face to face it 's then that his character's transformed, and you don 't see this element anymore. He finally seems to uh, sort of break through into spiritual maturity and deal with that element of his sin nature. but this is just the the beginning stage here in verse twenty seven he is a he's he 's a mild man or a complete man dwelling in tent, so he stayed at home. He's the one who's taking care of the records. He's watching over the business. He's learning to take care of all of the, uh, overseeing all of the domestic uh, activities. Remember, Isaac, like his father Abraham, is extremely wealthy. So he, they have a number of servants, people who work for them. And this idea that he's a dw- dwelling in tents doesn't mean he's tied to mama's apr- apron strings or he's just a homeboy, but he is... Focusing on those those uh, responsibilities back at home, whereas Esau's taken off and he's back in, on the trail uh, hunting animals and he's gone much of the time. But Jacob is the one who's learning the family business. Verse 28, we learn that there is uh, parental favoritism. Now, you never want to get into this, parents, where you favor one child over another. But there seems to be this favoritism developed within the uh, home. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. Now what we learn here is a little insight into Isaac's character. He's a gourmand. Uh, For those of you who don't know what that means, he's a foodie. He loves good food. He especially loves good food that's made with, with wild game. He enjoys the venison or wild goat. Uh, whatever uh, Esau brings home and cooks. And we also learn from this that Esau was a pretty decent cook, and Isaac loved to eat what Esau cooked for him. And that forms the background to what we're going to see in the 27th chapter. So Esau is Isaac's favorite, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, once again, just to take us back to the statement that we Studied for several weeks the idea that God loved Jacob and hated Esau. See, this doesn't when it says Rebecca loved Jacob, it doesn't mean she hates Esau because Isaac loves Esau, he doesn't hate Jacob. This is just a point of their choice, their their favorites. And so she dotes on Jacob, and she remembers that prophecy that God made that Jacob is the one that would receive the uh, the inheritance and the blessing and that the uh, older would serve the younger. Now that sets the stage for building into the lives of these two boys this sense of competition and who's going to really come out on top. And nothing that we see in the next chapters uh, is positive towards anybody. Rebecca uh, is clearly out of line Isaac's out of line, Esau's out of line, Jacob's out of line. You just see this picture. Everybody's manipulating to see who's going to get God's blessing rather than trusting God. What we learn in this is that despite the carnality, the manipulations, and the machinations of believers, God still overrides human history and works out his plan. And the issue for us is, are we going to be in line with God and his plan and therefore uh, participate in the process and enjoy being used by God in blessing the world, or are we going to just be out there operating on carnality where God uses us despite ourselves and there's no eventual uh, reward or inheritance? Verse 29, Now Jacob cooked a stew. The verse begins with a transition. We don't know how much time goes by, but verses 27 and 28 simply tell us that uh, a a lot of time went by, and the the boys are young men now. They've got uh, clearly defined characters, clearly defined strengths and weaknesses, and we come to a situation where Jacob cooked a stew. Now, we're not told any background to this. Why was he cooking a stew? And it's not really a stew. Literally... It's the idea that he boiled a boiled uh, a, a, he boiled a boiled meal. The word for boiling is the Hebrew word zud, and the word for stew is nazid. You hear the z d that's in both of those zud and nazid. and so the, it's the this word for stew is simply a form of the word for boiling. So he's boiling something. He's got some soup going or stew something. Uh, that he's cooking, and Esau came in from the field and was weary. Now, the the text doesn't make it clear, but it seems like this is a setup. And it might have happened more than once. The picture we get as we go through the rest of Jacob's life is that he's certainly not beyond uh, planning, conniving, setting a trap, and trying to get his... Uh, his brother into a situation where he can take advantage of him and make a deal with him over his birthright. And so it appears that Esau has been out hunting, and he hasn't been very fortunate. God has not blessed him on his hunting trip, and he hasn't brought home uh, any venison. He hasn't uh, eaten well. He hasn't had anything to drink. In that part of the world, he would come home. He'd not only be hungry, he would be very thirsty because it's a dry, arid uh, desert type of country and so Esau ret- returns and he's physically exhausted and he finds that uh, there's Jacob cooking waiting for him just like uh, setting it just like the bait in a trap now the interesting thing about this word it says now Jacob cooked a stew and the word for cook here is the imperfect. Uh, with a consecutive indicating continuing narrative of the Hebrew word zud, which means to boil. But it's interesting, this is the only place in the Old Testament where it has that meaning of boil. When it's applied to people, it emphasizes arrogance. And so you look at this, if you're reading it in the original and you come across this word, you wouldn't help but also associate with this concept arrogance, and here you have Jacob as the as the heel grabber acting uh, presumptuously towards God's plan, and he's trying to manipulate the the situation uh, in order to get the blessing for himself. He is clearly acting arrogantly in his actions. So that's that's in the background, part of a, a wordplay going on here. And he is uh, boiling food. Now, later on, we learn that, that all that he's boiling is just just uh, lentil stew. But the picture that's presented at the beginning is this is something that is quite attractive. And in verse 30, Esau comes up to him and says, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I'm weary. And then we're told, Therefore, his name is called Edom. Now, let's back up just a minute. He comes in, and he's tired and he's weary is worn out. Now, this is a great opportunity for our sin natures to take advantage of us. Anytime that we're tired, we're worn out, we all know this, what do we do? We get grumpy. We get irritated easily. Well, you know, We can easily give in to all kinds of temptation, to all kinds of sin. Whatever your favorite sin pattern is, you know that when you're tired and you're hungry, it's real easy for you to give in to whatever that may be because your defenses are down. You just don't have the the physical, the mental energy to to necessarily apply doctrine. So he comes in in a state where his defenses are down, he's tired, he's worn out, and here's where the test comes. And often that's what happens. The Lord allows us to be tested at those times when we're weak. This is what happened with the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes out in the he's led by the spirit out into the wilderness and he's tested by Satan three times after he has spent 40 days in the wilderness without food. So he's in a state of physical exhaustion and a state of hunger when he would be at a very weak point and it's at that point that that the devil Tests him, and the Lord responds in a state of human weakness by still relying upon the Word of God and using the Word of God to deflect the temptation that Satan brings. What we see in contrast to that, of course, is Esau just doesn't care about spiritual things, and that, that is the overriding point of this whole episode, which is where we come in the very last last verse that Esau despised his birthright. And that is the theological point of this episode, because we just get this little snapshot of this this uh, competition between Esau and Jacob, and then immediately after this, our our attention sh- is shifted to Isaac moving up to to Gerar in Philistia, and we have a 35-verse uh, interlude between this episode and the episode uh, that relates to uh, the de- deception in Jacob going after the second aspect of this, the blessing. So, Esau is in a state of weakness and he doesn't even try to deal with it. He just says, please feed me uh, with that same red stew. Literally in the Hebrew... He says he does say please. There is a formal, polite uh, request here. He uses a word that we would normally translate please. It's a nice request here. He comes in. He's famished. He's worn out. And yet he is respectful. He says please give me some of that stew. Literally please let me gulp down that red stuff. This red stuff. It, it, it reads very, very abrupt in the Hebrew. He wants... The red, this red. And the picture of this red stuff is a picture that, that we get at this point of a rich, hearty stew. I mean, it's something that looks really good. And uh, it's red, and so that, again, we have another paranomasia. That's a technical word for a pun. We have another paranomasia or wordplay here on his name on Edom and red. And this becomes a nickname for him because he makes such a fool of himself at this point. Can you imagine making a decision like this and then having that hung on you as a nickname for the rest of your life? It's almost as bad as Rahab the harlot. You know, we're going to meet her in heaven in the millennial kingdom. How are you? Well, I'm Rahab the harlot. Can you imagine throughout all eternity being known by by that nickname? Well, that Esau is going to be known by Edom throughout throughout history as the man who loved the red stuff. Now, in contrast to his polite little request, please give me some of that red stuff to gulp down, Jacob just dispenses with all the niceties and he just cuts to the quick. He says, sell me your birthright. He doesn't have any small talk. He doesn't say, now, let's have a little bargain here. He doesn't lead up to it. There's no transition. He just says, sell me your birthright this day. Sell it to me today, right now. And the word that is translated birthright is the Hebrew word bakar, bakar, which is a bakar. B-K-R are are the three consonants. I don't have a slide on it. B-K-R are the three consonants, bakar. And the Hebrew word for blessing is is a... is a similar uh makeup it's BRK where you get the Hebrew word berachah, meaning blessing so this is bekarah meaning birthright so the words may even be uh etymologically related so Jacob starts pushing this hard bargain To get the birthright. And the birthright is that which belonged by right of birth to the eldest son. And so the picture here is he's baited the trap. And Esau's walked right into it. And now he begins to develop that reputation as the chiseler, the conniver, and driving a hard uh, bargain. And the way he structures his sentence is to put the me up front in the Hebrew, to me. Sell your birthright now. So he's emphasizing that. So let's look at the principal privileges which go to the firstborn in the ancient world. First of all, the firstborn is uh, stated to be given and by God and to be consecrated to God. We see this in Exodus twenty-two twenty-nine, where God says, "You shall not delay." Offer the first of your produce and your juices, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. So the firstborn was dedicated to God. So there's a special place for the firstborn. Second, we see that they stood in honor next to their parents. In other words, all the other children had to respect that firstborn almost as much as they respected their parents just because he was the firstborn. Genesis 49.3 uh, Jacob says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. So the firstborn had a special place of privilege and respect over all the other offspring. third, The firstborn had a double portion in the paternal inheritance. They received twice as much simply because they were the firstborn. Deuteronomy 21.17, "...but he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his." So the firstborn gets a double inheritance. Now this is important to understand what goes on when we get into the New Testament and start talking about the two different kinds of inheritance that goes to the believer. We are heirs of God under one category and we are joint heirs with Christ under another category. All believers are heirs of God, but not all believers are joint heirs of Christ. If you look at the passage in Romans 8, joint, we're joint heirs of Christ if we suffer with him. There's a condition attached to being a joint heir with Christ. And that, if we suffer with him, and that has to do with growing and advancing in the spiritual life, then we become joint heirs of Christ and we share in the birthright of, of the double portion going to the firstborn. Jesus Christ is the, considered the firstborn, the one who has that, that privilege of the double inheritance and that is shared with believers who advance to spiritual maturity. That becomes the backdrop to a lot that is said in Hebrews related to uh, uh, our personal sense of our eternal destiny and pursuing that inheritance and not losing part of the inheritance along the way. Okay, three points. The firstborn is, is... given by God and consecrated to God, Exodus twenty-two twenty-nine. 29. Uh, the firstborn it has a position of honor second only to the parents, Genesis 49, verse 3. Third point, the firstborn has a double portion in their parental inheritance, Deuteronomy 21, 17. Uh, fourth point, the firstborn succeeded in the government or the family or the kingdom. Uh, they get... They follow the father's footsteps. This is Second 2 Chronicles 21.3. The father gave them great gifts of silver and gold and precious things which fortified cities in Judah. But he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. The firstborn has the right of, in, of, of inheritance, primogeniture. And then fifth point. The firstborn were honored with the office of priesthood and the administration of the public worship of God so that the priesthood passed also to the firstborn. So the firstborn has a special position within the family. And with that special position goes certain privileges and certain responsibilities. And the firstborn should live as if they are the firstborn, recognizing that's their birthright. And this plays a backdrop to how the New Testament is going to deal with this particular episode. Now, back to the text. Esau starts trying to bargain a little bit with the conniver. The conniver is pushing a hard bargain says, Sell me your birthright now. And Esau then says, look, I'm going to die. What is his birthright to me? He's, he's being very dramatic. You, you'd almost pin the term drama queen on Esau at this point. He's not close to death, but he's thinking he's close to death. Says, I'm about to die. What is his birthright to me? At this point, he just doesn't care. He's focusing more on satisfying his immediate needs, taking care of his immediate physical needs, rather than that which has a long-range, long-term benefit for him. In other words, he's more concerned about what's happening right now than what's happening long-range. He may even be a late teenager. See, one of the keys to any kind of maturity is that you're able to postpone gratification. So even if he has passed beyond his teenage years, he's not able to postpone gratification. There's a lack of Maturity here, he can't focus on that which has a long-range benefit because he's more concerned about uh, satisfying the immediate need of his flesh. So he uh, he thinks that the this bowl of lentil soup is more valuable than this double portion of his inheritance. Verse 33, Jacob isn't given up just yet. He says, Swear to me as of this day... Now, in their culture, this is like signing a contract. If Esau swears, he can't go back on it. And this, this it, it was like in the way it used to be in this country that if you entered into a bargain, if a handshake was as good as a signature, and this was based on personal integrity. And so, if he would swear to Jacob to give him his birthright, that was a bargain. It was a transaction. They could not be reversed. And so at this point, he sells his birthright to Jacob. So now Jacob has swindled his brother into giving him uh, the double portion of the inheritance. Now this seems to be a private transaction at this point because mom and dad aren't around. It's just the two boys. There has to be a more formal passing of this inheritance and the blessing that goes with it. And that's what occurs in chapter 27. Now in verse 34 we get the divine commentary. Jacob, now Jacob after he has gotten the deal he gave Esau bread and stew of lentils and then watch the verbs here. Then he ate he drank or he arose and he went his way. He doesn't stop. He doesn't talk about it. He doesn't get refreshed and just stay and talk to his brother. He, He just gets up And he leaves. After his talking about everything earlier, his silence at this point stands out as a stark contrast. Does he care about the birthright? Does he have any regrets now that his stomach is full? Or is bitterness already starting to spring up? Is he already starting to resent what just happened? We all know that we've gone through things like that where we've done something that's wrong and immediately we start uh, feeling guilty. We have resentment towards whoever got us involved in a situation and so it, it seems like the root of bitterness that's spoken of in Hebrews chapter 12 is already developing. Esau, we're told, thus Esau despised his birthright and the Hebrew word translated despised is the word baza, which means to treat with contempt or to despise. He treated it lightly. It had no value for him, and he is going to reap the consequences for that, both in terms of his relationship with his brother and his relationship uh, with his father. As God had prophesied back in verse 23, these two represented two nations, and we see the outworking of this conflict between Jacob and Esau as you go down through history. Edom's traditional home is south and east of the Dead Sea. When Israel was returning from uh, Egypt as they tra- uh, went through the wilderness for 40 years, and then God began to lead the conquest generation, the second generation To Canaan, they had to go around the land of Edom because the Edomites refused to let Israel pass through their territory, even though God told them that they were not to take any of that territory because he had given that to to Edom. That story is told in Numbers chapter 20, verses 14 through 21. Then later on in the period of the monarchy, the period of Saul and David and, and subsequent rulers, there is... Uh, periodic conflict and war between Edom and Israel. At some, at, there, at some times in history, Edom is taken over and ruled by the king of Israel. For example, in 1 Samuel 14.47, and it's again mentioned in 2 Samuel 8.14, they There were other times when Edom had independence and during that time it tried to assert itself against Israel. And They were always trying to stab Israel in the back. In fact, at the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., Edom sided with the Babylonians and helped cut off the retreat of the Judeans who were trying to escape from the Babylonians. And that action was reviewed rather bitterly by the prophets in Ezekiel twenty five, twelve through fourteen, as well as in Obadiah chapter ten through chapter fourteen. So there's this, this antagonism that continues through history between Edom and Israel. Then it was predicted that Edom would be destroyed once and for all and incorporated into the kingdom of Israel, and that's also in Obadiah as well as in Malachi. And this is what eventually happened and the kingdom of Edom disappeared from history. But the lesson that we get on Esau comes up in Hebrews chapter 12. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And we'll get a foreshadowing of coming attractions in our Hebrew study on Thursday nights. We won't get there for some time. Hebrews chapter 12 turn to verse 14. Hebrews 12:14 through 17 represents one basic statement in the in the um, in the passage. Hebrews uh, verses 14, 15 and 16 are all one sentence, so I wanted to start with Hebrews 12:14. This is where we have our basic command in Hebrews 12.14, which begins with a present active imperative, which indicates a primary command emphasizing a standard operating procedure or characteristic of the Christian life. And the verb there is dioko, which means to pursue a course of action. It means to be earnest and diligent in the pursuit of a goal or objective, It means to move rapidly and decisively towards that objective. It is a strong word for aggressive pursuit of an objective. We are to pursue the objective of peace with all men. We are not to seek to be involved in an antagonistic relationship. We're not supposed to uh, be viewed at enmity with other men, but we are to pursue peace with all men. And then after that objective, it is linked by the conjunction chi to the second uh, objective, which is to pursue sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. So it is an emphasis here on the believer advancing in sanctification so that they will have a more intimate relationship with the Lord in the future. That's where this is... This is headed. I'm not going to get sidetracked on dealing with that right now. But that's the thrust of this whole section in chapter 12 is is another warning section in Hebrews that if believers succumb and get distracted by the details of life rather than pursuing spiritual maturity, then it will have an impact on their position, their responsibilities, and, and privileges in the millennial kingdom. So the command there is to pursue peace. And then in verse 15, if you've got an English Bible, it probably just starts with a basic uh, participle, looking carefully. Well, what exactly does it mean, looking carefully? What is the relationship of that ing word to the main verb which occurs in the previous verse? The ing there indicates that it's a participle. And that's what we have in the Hebrew is a participle. And any participle that comes along after an imperative verb is going to tell us something about how to achieve, how to implement the mandate in the imperative verb. Now, when we have an adverbial participle like this, it can have uh, any number of possible nuances. But in a situation like this, the only thing that fits is that the participle is an adverbial participle of means. One way in which we pursue peace with all is by looking carefully at our own lives. So now this is going to give us a little better understanding of what that meant to pursue peace with all men. By looking carefully, by giving close examination to what's going on inside of our own soul. Because what happens is when there's people tests and people don't act the way we think they ought to act, people treat us the way we shouldn't be treated, then we have a tendency to react with anger, with resentment, with bitterness, with hostility. Uh, When people really stab us in the back, then we just nurture those thoughts with revenge and vengeance, figuring out some way to get back at them. And we think of all kinds of scenarios that we think the Lord ought to to, uh, consider As he applies his side of the deal, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Actually, when you trace out the meaning of the Hebrew word for that original quote, vengeance, isn't really the idea of revenge. Because God isn't about personal revenge. He is a God who is concerned with justice. And that's really the thrust of that word is that God, as the judge of uh, of heaven, is going to bring about justice in the life of those who were unrighteous. And he is going to see that justice is meted out to everyone, either in time or at the judgment seat of Christ or at the great white throne judgment. But eventually, there is judgment. R.G. Lee was a Baptist preacher in the early 20th century, preached a very famous sermon. I love the title, Payday Someday. And there's accountability for everyone at some point in Uh, either in time or at the judgment seat of Christ, the great white throne judgment. So we are to pursue peace with others by looking carefully at what's going on inside of our own soul when there is a situation where we are mistreated, abused, where someone takes advantage of us, where someone who is a conniver and a supplanter uh, steals from us and we are unjustly treated. Now we just saw an example of that, didn't we? Esau is mistreated. He is the victim of a of a real con job by his own brother. Now there's, you know, it's tough when you get mistreated or abused by a friend. It is really tough when you are uh, really stabbed in the back by someone who is a close relative, someone you. Uh, think you can can truly trust in any and every situation. So, <coughs> the writer of Hebrews says that you are to closely exam examine. You are to give oversight is the idea here. It's the Greek uh, word epi, uh, episkopos uh, episkopos rather, which is the word for episc where we get our noun episcopos. Studied that Sunday morning. Episcopos, which is the The Greek word translated overseer or bishop, where we get our word episcopal. It means to give oversight. So the verb episcopeo means to uh, give oversight, to exercise oversight, to pay close attention to something in order to avoid a hazard. So we are to carefully examine what's going on in our own soul, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Now, what does that mean? That means that you lose salvation? No. It means that instead of responding in grace, you fall short of grace, that your response to the person who's just stabbed you in the back just abused you, just uh, cheated you, just uh, betrayed you, that this person uh, needs to still be treated with grace orientation. But what happens is when we react with anger, resentment, bitterness, revenge, we fall short. Of grace orientation. We fall short of applying the grace of God. In that situation. And so the writer says. Lest anyone fall short of of the grace of God. Or fail to exercise grace orientation. Lest any root of bitterness. Springing up cause trouble. And this is a picture of bitterness. As a root. That is. that that sinks down in this soil of mental attitude sins that then bears fruit in many other mental attitude sins. The, The root is bitterness, and it develops a plant that produces the fruit of anger, resentment, revenge, hostility, and it causes trouble, and not only in our own life, but as we let bitterness play itself out, it affects those around us because we become uh, embittered and nasty and resentful and that leads to sins of the tongue gossip, slander, judging others and this in turn affects others now that word translated defiled is the Greek word meino now this is an interesting word I spent some time going back over the history of this word today and the primary sense of this word is to stain. It had the idea of, of of staining a garment a particular color, giving it a dye job. Now it's used in the scriptures the same way it's used in extra biblical uh, religious literature and extra biblical religious lit- literature it has to do with being involved in any activity that separates a person from their god well, whoever the god is in greek thought it, was, it could have been any, anyone in the greek pantheon but that was how it was used in classical greek from the fifth century on it had to do with any kind of activity that, that, can, that hindered a relationship with god The word is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Leviticus to refer to anything that makes a person ceremonially unclean. Now that word unclean is a word that ought to just set off some warning bells and lights in your head because unclean is the opposite of clean or being cleansed and of course 1 John one nine talks about the fact that if we confess our sins God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to Cleanse or purify us from all unrighteousness, that word is the word a uh, catharizo, and that word group katharos, catharizo is used in the in the Septuagint in Leviticus to talk about a person being ceremonially cleansed so that they can in turn go into the tabernacle or the temple and offer sacra- or and, and, and worship God. You had to be cleansed before you could go in and worship God. If you committed any number of acts that are out, outlined in Leviticus, touched dead bodies, ate unclean animals, then you would be ceremonially unclean. That doesn't mean you had sinned. You may have sinned, but it doesn't mean that because touching a dead body isn't a sin, but it rendered you ceremonially unclean. Eating catfish would render you ceremonially unclean. Eating lobster would make you ceremonially unclean. Eating shrimp, crawfish, you know, we just couldn't have any fun. You know, so much for does. See, I'm a foodie too. But when you get into... When you get into Leviticus, this terminology was used especially in relationship to the priesthood and the function of the ceremony and the ritual in the tabernacle of the temple. And what's going on in Hebrews? Who is the writer of Hebrews addressing? It is a community of former priests that had become believers and are now being... Being uh, tested, they're under adversity, and many of them are wanting to go back into, into the Levitical system. That's why a major theme in Hebrews is a contrast of the superiority of Christ's priesthood to the Levitical or the Aaronic priesthood, and the sacrificial the sacrifice of Christ is superior to the sacrifices in the in the Old Testament. So when the writer of Hebrews comes up here and uses this word meino to a group of former Levitical priests, what they are hearing is that uh, bitterness and anger, mental attitude, sins that all spring from bitterness destroy your relationship with God. And so it's a very clear warning that the way you pursue peace with others is not by going to them and not by compromising and not by working out certain things that may be involved, but it's by looking at your own soul and not letting yourself give in to anger and resentment and bitterness and focus on the hurt, but deal with people on the basis of grace and we deal with people not on the basis of what they deserve but on the basis of what how God treats them on the on the basis of the cross and what Jesus Christ did on the cross now the illustration of the person who responds in bitterness is esau lest there be verse 16 goes on to say lest there be any fornicator or profane person like esau who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. So he becomes the example of the person who is mistreated, abused, treated unjustly by someone, and uh, gives himself over to bitterness because he has made a bad decision on his own part. Now let's look at the terminology here for a minute. In some some of your translations it will say, lest there be any fornicator or godless person. Like Esau, And this immediately gives the impression that Esau is not a believer. But there's nothing in the scripture that indicates one way or the other about Esau's justification status. It's just not there. The first word there, fornicator, is the Greek word uh, pornos. And the Greek word pornos is generally translated immoral, but it's a word that relates to uh, a male or female who has prostituted themselves for personal gain, and this is exactly what Esau, Esau does in selling his birthright. He's more concerned about his own immediate pleasure than he and selling selling it for, for personal selling his birthright for personal gain than he is for the long range value of his birthright. The second word, godless is the Greek word bebelos. And this is a word that is used in contrast to hagios or holy, which means to be set apart to the service of God. So something would be set apart to the service of God and thus it's holy. Something that was not set apart to the service of God, but was for everyday use, that people used uh, in any situation everywhere, is would be called profane or common. And thus the word bebelos means something that is used in a common or profane manner that means in some cases it means pointless or worthless in other cases it refers to that which is worldly and, and other, that lacks eternal values or, is in, is, or lacks God's values so what Hebrews 12.16 is saying lest there be any, anyone among you who is prostituting or selling their birthright for, for personal gain in the immediate present or a person who has values inconsistent with their position in God's royal family, like Esau, who for a morsel of food sold his birthright. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're members of the royal family of God, and we have a royal identity... And God has given us a destiny to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we get involved in mental attitude sin and sins of the tongue, when we get involved in any kind of carnality, what we are doing is we are prostituting the the, the future our future position with Christ for satisfying present fleshly i. e. sin nature satisfaction. And that is the picture of Esau as he's someone who's more concerned about gratifying his immediate fleshly need than focusing on who he is as a member of this special family and all the privileges that would go to him in reference to his birthright. And then verse 17, afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, there's remorse, there's regret, he's rejected it's too late. He's made, a, he's made an irreversible bargain. He has made entered into a transaction and a contract by swearing to uh, Jacob that he would give him the birthright. And that's what it means for he found no place for repentance, no place for change. There could not be a reversal of the deal, though he sought it diligently with tears. So afterwards he understood what he had done. Uh, what he had lost by prostituting his birthright, but nevertheless he couldn't reverse it. And this is a picture of what's going to happen with a vast number of believers who, according to 1 John 2:18, are going to have shame at the judgment seat of Christ. They're going to be, or I think it's 2:28, 1 John 2:28. They're going to have shame and embarrassment at the judgment seat of Christ because. Uh, They're going to have all their works burned up as wood, hay, and straw. They're going to enter heaven, yet it's through fire. And it's because they were more concerned with satisfying uh, the immediate trends of their sin nature, the lust patterns of their sin nature, rather than focusing on eternal priorities and postponed gratification for the millennial kingdom. Next time we'll come back and we'll hit Genesis 26. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by the fact that we need to think in terms of our eternal destiny. We need to make decisions today in light of where you are taking us. We need to make decisions today in light of eternity. Father, we pray that you challenge us with this example from Esau, that we would not uh, be like Esau, but we would value our birthright as members of the royal family of God, that we may... Uh, honor you for having adopted us into your family and that we may pursue spiritual maturity in preparation for our future destiny we pray this in christ's name amen